All right, please take your Bibles then. Turn again, please, to Paul's second epistle or letter to the Corinthians. We're beginning an exposition, an exegetical uh, study of this epistle. We started a couple of weeks back in chapter 1. We're going to pick up in chapter 2. But remember, chapter 1 began with a very important issue, and it is how God uses us to comfort others. Paul says in the opening verses that God does not comfort us in our times of trouble to make us comfortable, but rather he comforts us to equip us to comfort others, to be comforters of others. It's a tremendous message. And he continues with that in, in applying it in a practical way in this passage. So chapter 2 actually begins as far as the context is concerned back in chapter 1 at verse 23. And that's where we are going to pick up this morning. Now, when we come to chapter 1, this is a very difficult passage for preachers. In fact, most preachers, I think, who do a real exegetical study of this passage don't preach it because it's too personal, it's too intimate, it's too convicting and uh, causes a lot of pain to pastors. But you know, I am a person who likes spiritual pain, so I sort of look out for these passages, so we will be looking at it in detail. As I said, though, the context of chapter 2 actually begins in chapter 1, verse 23, where Paul begins to deal with, with what I call the anguish of pastoral loving discipline. The anguish of pastoral loving discipline. Because that's what he'd be working with here. Listen then to verse 23 of Second Corinthians chapter 1. I call God as witness to my soul. This shows the seriousness of what he's about to say. He's actually swearing that what he's going to be saying now is true. It is going to be accurate. This also implies that the Corinthians had questioned his truthfulness and integrity, which he, will, which he focused on also, if you look back, in, chap, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 21. Because that's a problem that arose in the Corinthians church after he left. Teachers and different individuals came in and started to question his integrity based on promises he has made but he didn't keep. And they were saying that he was not a man of his word. And Paul is addressing that as well. So keep that in mind as you go on. You notice he says, that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. He's going to now explain the reason for his not keeping his promise to return to Corinth as he had promised. He hadn't done it before. He wants to do that right now. And he is explaining then the hidden reason for him breaking his promise to visit them. He's going to give us a lot of details for this. But it involved their dealing with a sinning brother in the assembly. Anton mentioned this earlier. Now, it's a little question or doubt as to whether the sinning brother is the same one mentioned in chapter 1. You remember we talked about that? This was the man who was committing immorality, and Paul uh, insisted that they excommunicate this man if he did not repent and put him in the hands of Satan and so on, which was a terrible thing. But uh, it probably is the same individual. And the way it was handled, some of the church members didn't like it. 
Now, you know, when we deal with discipline, especially if it had to be public discipline, you're going to find close friends and members many times uh, opposing it. And even though they might say, yeah, it should be done, they don't want it to be done because it's one of their loved ones and so on. And it causes trouble and it causes friction within the church. And this is what is happening in this context. And if you don't see that day, you're not going to understand what Paul is talking about here. So apparently, a good number of the people at Corinth, at least some, did not like the way that dis- discipline was taking place, had taken place. And so they didn't want to carry out Paul's instructions in the first place. They did not want to carry out his instructions. And so in effect, they were challenging his authority as an apostle. And this is also challenged in this passage people were now saying he did not have the authority to do that kind of a thing. Paul, though, was doing everything in his power to avoid having to take disciplinary action now against those who opposed what he did before. He did not want to go through the same process again because of their rebellion against what he was doing in Corinth. He did not want to force them to do what is right. He wanted them to do it voluntarily and willingly because they knew it was God's will. Now, this is quite interesting here and very helpful for me. This is one reason why I never try to force a Christian to do anything in Christian service that they don't feel that they want to do or God is calling them to do it. Because they have to do it based on their own conviction that this is what God wants them to do. I, I, for instance, one of the, I, I think I mentioned this before, We have individuals who leave the church at times, and they would come in to see me and say that they are going to leave this church assembly. I just ask them one question. Is this God's will for you to do? If they say yes, I say fine. Tell me how I can help you to leave Calvary as soon as possible. Why? Because I want them to do what? God's will. I don't want to fight or resist that. So I said, tell me what I need to do to help you to leave Calvary in order that you could do God's will. See, that's the primary thing. A person has to be convinced in their own heart that what they're doing for God is something that they call, that God called them to do. You cannot force them and say, hey, no, 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 you cannot do that. You know what you got to offer this assembly. You know how long you've been here and all of that kind of a thing. If a person feels that God is leading them in a direction then it is my responsibility as a pastor to help them and to encourage them to fulfill that. This is exactly what Paul is doing here. And he makes this very clear. Because he does not want to force them to do what they should do, because they need to do it as unto God, not as unto him, even as an apostle. So notice now, as he makes this very clear in the next statement, And this statement now reveals the humility of a true servant of God amongst his people. Verse 24, chapter 1. Not that that we lorded over your faith. Notice that? This is an apostle speaking now. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. I want you to notice several things here. First, Paul's humility. He says he does not want to lord it over their faith. Now just think about that. If there's anybody who had the authority to 
give specific and concrete directions to a church, it was the apostle. Why? He had founded the church. And he was also an apostle by direct command and call from God. Jesus Christ has given him apostolic authority. But now he says he did not want to lord it over their faith. He did not want to appear to be domineering and dictatorial as far as living out their faith is concerned. Now, Paul was a genuine apostle, but he wanted to resist this idea of being a a, uh, dictator as far as the people was concerned. But now, in keeping with his own qualifications of a pastor as given by all of the apostles, Paul was trying to live out what he preached. For instance, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Remember now, Peter is a fellow apostle. I exhort the elders among you. We believe that the elders and and pastors are the same. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion by force, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now notice the words. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing to be examples of the flock. Paul in Second Corinthians is demonstrating that he is an example. And he's living out with the apostles with teaching concerning what a true, authentic, spirit-called, spirit-equipped pastor is supposed to do. Paul is now modeling that out to the believers at Corinth. That is why this is such a magnificent passage of scripture here for pastors and people in general. He is modeling what the apostles taught with regard to being a true pastor. But notice what he says. He is a worker with them. Do you notice that? Notice carefully now. He is a worker with them. He doesn't say that they are workers with him. Although, of course... That is implied. It has to be so already. But he's saying that he was a worker along with them in fulfilling God's purpose in the church. So he again is being very humble here. He says, listen, I am in this ministry with you. I am here helping to assist you to carry out God's purpose in the church. Paul is very humble here. He is a worker with them rather than saying that they were a worker with him. Although, of course... The one implies the other, and in fact, it includes the other. Paul, in other words, is going out of his way to demonstrate humility and the high regard he has for Corinthians, the Corinthian church, as fellow members of the incredible body of Christ. He does not want for a moment to give them the impression that he thinks he's superior to them or better to them in any way. He is among them, he is with them, he's equal with them, and that is what he is trying to demonstrate here. So he is modeling the kind of attitude and relationship all true pastors should have with their people. See, this is why it becomes difficult to preach this passage. Because Paul is saying to you, to us, to the Corinthians at that time, judge me by this standard. So therefore, as I preach this, I have to say the same thing. And you see, this is where I'm afraid. Judge me 
by the same standard that Paul is saying here. Do I, and all of the pastors we have here, do we demonstrate humility toward you in our ministry? Do, you, do we regard you as an equal member of the incredible body of Christ, or do we sometimes try to show that we are somehow superior or better than you are? Do we ever project the attitude that we are in some way spiritually superior than you are? Do we project the idea that we are your bosses or spiritual guru? There are many churches who do that, by the way. You have to live by the standards of the, what the pastor says. You have to bring in your paycheck and let them know what you make so they can know exactly what you're supposed to give to the church. Paul runs away from that kind of an attitude or behavior. Now, if, we, if you say to us, yes, you do try to lord it over us, yes, you do, do not show humility but arrogance and so on, then what you are saying is that I am not an authentic pastor. I am not a pastor who has been approved of God to be your pastor. This is what Paul is demonstrating. He is a genuine pastor because he is demonstrating the qualities that God desires. Humility, equality amongst the people of God, and so on, and not domineering it over the people of God. Because pastors are responsible for the most valuable thing on the face of this earth, and that's the people of God. Why? Because the people of God has been purchased with what? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important than those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And God has chosen, and this is why it's so important for us to be sure that when we select leaders, we do so according to the word of God and not our own inclinations or our own likes or dislikes. Because God has chosen individuals to provide protection and instruction for his people so that they might learn how to worship him, to love him, and to love one another. And spiritual qualifications are necessary for that. If we don't meet those qualifications, then we are what Jesus calls hirelings. We are in the business for the money and not for the glory of God. Paul is running away from that. Paul is demonstrating that he is a genuine pastor. So what I'm saying is here, how do we know then? It's for you to decide. And if for any reason you feel that me or Pastor Arnott or Pastor Albury or Pastor Roland or Pastor Cartwright... Uh, who am I leaving out? As a follow, well, he, you know, we ain't got to worry about him. <laughs> he, he's all right. When are you getting here? Uh, if we don't meet these standards, then you should get rid of us. I'm serious about that. And we should realize if we're not, then we need to get right with God. We need to repent and we need to get things right. Otherwise, God will not be able to work in and through us the way he should. Amen? So, Paul is humble, but he's also upfront. He's practical, and he puts it right into your face. He's telling us how it is. Now, as we'll see as we go, as we go on, he is explaining. In fact, he is establishing the genuineness and authenticity of his own ministry, because that is what is being questioned. And that's why he's spending a lot of time in this, if you see it here. By the way, this is one reason why in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians 1, remember, there's a group of people came up, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, and so on. That was the reason why, you see. 
they were questioning the authority and the ability of the men who were leading them. Paul is still dealing with that problem in the second epistle as well. But now you see, here's where the tension comes in. Pastors are leaders. Pastors are leaders of God's people. But we are also equal with God's people, spiritually speaking. As members of the incredible body of Christ, we are on equal standing with God, right? That has to do with spiritual position. But when it comes to function in the body, there's a difference. The pastors are leaders. The pastors are not to be led by the people. You don't have sheep leading the shepherd. Right or wrong? The shepherd have to lead the sheep. That's where the tension comes. How do we keep that relationship balanced? How do we show our oneness with the congregation but yet demonstrate the fact that God has called us to lead. That is the tension that is being expressed here in this, in this entire first epistle. So, Paul then, in spite of his humility and sense of oneness with the Christians, still had to show leadership to do things at times that the body will not like. Now, what do you do with that? You don't want to hurt other people's feelings because, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister, but you need to be disciplined. How do I do that without losing you? How do I do that when you say, well, I'm going to stay around this church, I'm going someplace else. How is a leader supposed to lead amongst people that are equal to him spiritually? That's the tension that Paul is facing in this chapter here. The writer of the Hebrews, by the way, explains the reason and the philosophy behind this kind of thinking. Now, something that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and I'm sort of leaning that way myself. And you read this passage and you put it in context here. Perhaps you'll see the reason why, one reason why anyway. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. It's an amazing passage. It's almost like it's supposed to be in chapter 2 of Second Corinthians. But this is what he is dealing with. By the way, this is one passage that really puts the fear of God within me when I read it. I tremble in spirit and soul every time I come across this passage. I want you to notice the check and balance here that God has given to us in the church. Obedience to leaders on the part of the people on one side, and then a solemn awareness of our accountability to God as far as the leaders are concerned on the other side. How is that to be balanced? Paul is saying, it should be demonstrated in such a way that the result is mutual joy in our relationship. In other words, one should balance out the other, each caring for the other equally. Because when either element is out of balance, misunderstanding and divisions come about. If we try to be too domineering or we try to be too friendly, we don't want to hurt anybody, then you run into problems. So a leader has to find the balance where he can do what God says he must do in regard to his people when they sin. But do it in such a way that it shows humility and love 
and concern. This is what Paul is dealing with in 2 Corinthians. This is exactly what is happening here in our text and the problem Paul is addressing. Now, it is within this spiritual context and dynamic that Paul explains why he altered his visit with them. Now, you see, this practical thing here of not keeping a promise to visit as, as he said he would has some real doctrinal issues behind it. So he is now going to explain why he altered his plans to visit them. And the reason was it was for their mutual benefit. Now they were complaining and criticizing him. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll see that they were doubting that he was a man of his word. But he went on and says, yes I am. My yes is yes and my no is no. I don't just, I'm not fickle in my promises. And he even says that's the way Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ, when he said, yea, that was yea. When he says nay, it was nay. Paul says, when I make a statement, you can keep, you can know that I'm going to keep my word. But now, in this case, he didn't. And so, the, the, the people were questioning his integrity and his, his truthfulness as a leader. But Paul is now going to explain why he did it. Now, I want you to notice here again, and that's why I'm being very slow on this this morning, how practice and doctrine come together. You cannot separate practice from doctrine. And that is what Paul is. Paul is saying even the reason for not coming to you was based on doctrine. It wasn't just a haphazard thing. Why it is so important for us to understand doctrine or truth is that our doctrine is the basis for our behavior. We could say the doctrine is the cause, our action is the result, and we cannot have one without the other. My belief dictates what I do. Your belief dictates what you do, whether you understand that or not. Notice what he says now, and this is finally we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. So, I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. So you see now, Paul is implying that he had been with them before and that he had a difficult time with them before. It appears that when he left with them, when he left them, they were not on good terms. The church was in an uproar over his handling of this discipline and so on. So he promised to return, presumably to straighten things out between them, but he didn't come back. So some are saying, seen there, he running away. He's not real at all. He's running away from his response. He came here to this church and caused all this uproar and he left. He said he's coming back to get it right. He didn't come back. That's the kind of man he is. Paul is trying to get this straight. Paul is saying, I did not break that promise for my benefit only, but for yours also. Now, they didn't realize it, but Paul is going to explain this. Now, he was going back to them, but he felt that the tension was just a little bit too great. So rather than going back to visit him, he wrote a letter. He's very firm in that letter as well. Now, we don't have that letter. That's with probably the real second letter. The one we're reading as 2 Corinthians is probably 3 Corinthians. Now, some question, how come he didn't get that? Because God doesn't want us to have it. Maybe Paul was so strong there, you know, we could take that the wrong way. I, I don't know. But the point is, God did not want us to have that letter, or we would have had it in our canon today. 
what we have in First and Second Corinthians is sufficient for us to know God's mind on these things. So Paul continues then by stating in a different way the truth he taught in chapter 1, that God allows us to experience sufferings in our lives so that we could be trained and equipped to pass on the comfort he invested in us to bring us through the suffering of others. Paul is going to apply that truth now in a very practical way. Notice what he says, verse 2. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did. That's the second letter we don't have. So that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish. Now, Paul is revealing something of a leader here that we would not normally hear. Here is a man who is supposed to be filled with the Spirit, who has a call from God, and he's talking about anguish. He's talking about anxiety with this situation. I wrote this letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Paul did, in this case here, what he did out of love for the Corinthians. But they didn't realize that, so they were condemning him and criticizing him. Now notice, he did it for love. Love for them. They didn't take it that way. They take it as a man who was running away from responsibility, and he was not a genuine apostle. Paul is now explaining it. No, the reason why I didn't keep my word as I said I would is because I love you so much. And that's quite a comeback, isn't it? I love you so much. This is a beautiful and magnificent teaching here. Now, if you put that along with Hebrews 13, 17 that we read, maybe you'll see what's happening here. Listen to what it says again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. See, that's what Paul was doing. He was showing love by not going back with the kind of forceful teaching that he had to give. Let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This is exactly what is going on in Second Corinthians here. Paul is saying, don't make sad those who make you glad. Don't make sad those who make you glad. Otherwise, they will not be able to make you glad when you are sad. That's the idea. So he says, love them instead, and you will be loved as well. Now, please, don't confuse this with the I love you if idea. That's not what Paul is talking here. That's a selfish motive. And you're going to see a lot of that during Valentine. Um, but what Paul is talking about here is what I call the body love principle. In other words, love Genuine love reproduces itself. When you go to Ephesians chapter 4, the body grows by loving one another. That's what Paul says. In other words, you love a member, they love you back. Spiritual growth occurs. And Paul is trying to keep that intact here. We grow together in love as members of the incredible body of Christ when we show love for one another. And that is what Paul is doing here. Now, of course, his love was misunderstood. In fact, just the opposite message was received by the Corinthians. They thought he was doing it out of spite. But that's not so. 
So Paul is saying here then that his change of plans was motivated by and a demonstration of his love for them. It was not a sign of fickleness or one who does not keep his word, as some were saying and were complaining and criticizing him of doing. In other words, his good intentions were misinterpreted and misunderstood. And the result was conflict in the church because of misunderstanding. Friends, wars have been started over a misunderstanding. And you see, Paul is showing here that that is one of the cause for a lot of trouble in the church. Misunderstanding, you see. Now, I want to remind you of a biblical example of this very thing. We could give examples from history, but let's go to the scriptures. Then this very thing occurred. Remember when Joshua was giving out the land in the promised land to all the tribes and so on? An incident happened. Now, this is a long reading, but I want to read it because the spiritual truth is ingrained within this teaching. Joshua chapter 22, verse 7. Moses had given the land of Bashan east of the Jordan River to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The other half of the tribe was given land west of the Jordan. So one is on one side, one is on the other side. As Joshua sent them away and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your homes with the great wealth you have taken from your enemies. The vast herds of livestock, the silver, the gold, the bronze and iron, and the large supply of clothing. Share the plunder with your relatives. So the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the rest of Israel at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. They started the journey back to their own land of Gilead, the territory that belonged to them according to the Lord's command through Moses. But while they were still in Canaan, and when they came to a place called Gililoth near the Jordan River, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stopped to build a large and imposing altar. Now notice, the rest of Israel heard that the people of Reuben, now notice, heard, this is a rumor, that the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built an altar at Gilead at the edge of the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan River. So, the whole community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and prepared to go to war against them. First, however, and here is a good procedure in counseling, especially when you're dealing with rumors. You don't act as the fact. You try to find out what the facts really are. And so this is what these leaders did. First, however, they sent a delegation led by Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, to talk with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. In other words, rather than taking the word of a third party, they say, hey, let me hear it from those who are involved directly. And friends, that's always the best thing to do when you hear gossip. Sip-sip, they call it here. You know, because for many, the sip-sip is more true than the Bible. You see? And what we're learning here is that's not the way to handle it. You go directly to the people involved. Now, in this delegation were ten leaders of Israel. They send those who are the leaders. One from each of the ten tribes and each of the head of his family within the clans of Israel. Because this was a serious thing here. Because the idea was that they were building an altar in order to worship false gods. That's the message that was coming across. When they arrived in the land of Gilead, they said to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Nassau, The whole community of the Lord demands to know why you are betraying the God of Israel. 
See that judgment has really been passed. They were doing something that was wrong. They were going, they were committing idolatry. They had already decided that up to this point. How could you turn away from the Lord and build an altar for yourselves in rebellion against him? Was our sin at Peor not enough? To this day we are not fully cleansed of it, even after the plague that struck the entire community of the Lord. And yet today you are turning away from following the Lord. That's a sip-sip that they heard. If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with all of us tomorrow. So you see, they were actually looking out for themselves. Because they knew that if they had committed idolatry, God was going to punish all of them for it. If you need the altar because the land you possess is defiled, then join us in the Lord's land where the tabernacle of the Lord is situated and share our land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar other than the one true altar of the Lord our God. Didn't divine anger fall on the entire community of Israel when Achan, a member of the clan of Zerah, sinned by stealing the things set apart for the Lord? See, they even use in Scripture now to validate what they're doing. He was not the only one who died because of his sin. Then the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered the heads of the clans of Israel. The Lord, the mighty one, is God. The Lord, the mighty one, is God. He knows the truth, and may Israel know it too. We have not built the altar in treacherous rebellion against the Lord. If we have done so, do not spare our lives this day. If we have built an altar for ourselves to turn away from the Lord, or to offer burnt offerings, or grain offerings, or peace offerings, may the Lord himself punish us. The truth is, now they can explain why they built the, offering, the altar. And notice, all of Israel is out to get rid of these people because they listen to Sip Sip. All right? Now notice, the truth is, we have built this altar because we fear that in the future, your descendants will say to us, what right do you have to worship the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has placed the Jordan River as a barrier between our people and you and the people of Reuben and Gad. You have no claim to the Lord. So, your descendants may prevent our descendants from worshiping the Lord. See, they were actually protecting their worship of God for the generations to come. So, we decided to build an altar. Notice now, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. The implication is to false gods. But as a memorial, it will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have the right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings. Then, your descendants will not be able to say to us, you have no claim to the Lord. So you see, their reason for building this altar was a godly one. They were protecting the worship of God for generations to come. But the Sip-Sip had tell, told the other people that was not true. They were doing it in order to commit idolatry. And they were ready to wipe them out. Notice now, far be it from us to rebel against the Lord or turn away from him by building our own altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice. Only the altar of the Lord our God that stands in front of the tabernacle may be used for that purpose. So they were solid as far as their worship of God was concerned. Now when Phineas, the high priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of Israel, heard this from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, the half-tribes of Manasseh, they were satisfied. Notice that? In other words, they heard it from the folks 
who were being charged for committing this idolatry. They heard it from the lips of the ones who were being accused. And they got the truth. See, the problem with a lot of people in the church is we listen to sip-sip from friends and other people and we take it as being gospel. And it is not gospel at all. It's just selfish and carnal gossip that can cause division against the people of God. And this is what happened with Paul now. This is what was happening with Paul. Now notice. The priest, they replied to them, Today we know the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord as we thought. Instead, you have rescued Israel from being destroyed by the hand of the Lord. So the very thing that they thought would happen because of what they did here is what they were preventing from happening because of what they did. Misunderstanding. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priests and the other leaders left the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Gilead and returned to the land of Canaan to tell the Israelites what had happened. And all the Israelites were satisfied and praised God and spoke no more of war against Reuben and Gad. The people of Reuben and Gad named the altar witness, for they said, It is a witness between us and them that the Lord is our God also. Paul, in his epistle, second epistle to the Corinthians, is repeating the same procedure for clearing up misunderstanding and baseless assumptions with his ministry. He is doing the very same thing. Paul now continues then with how the situation in Corinth is to be handled properly. He is saying now that's the way the people of Israel handled it properly, dealing with false rumor and so on. Now, here's the way to deal with this situation. You are accusing me of being a man who has no integrity, who makes promises that I don't keep, and so on, and not being a genuine apostle because we wanted to exercise discipline against an ungodly person who would not repent. But now, see, what had happened is, after they got Paul's second letter, they did go about in disciplining the person. But they did it because Paul, in a sense, really strongly encouraged them to do it. Although some of them didn't want to do it, they finally decided to do it. Now, notice what he's saying. What happened as a result was that the person repented. He confessed his sin. But the people now, because they were so lax before in not disciplining, after they disciplined and he repented, they didn't want to accept him back in the church. They wanted to keep the discipline going by keeping him out of the church. This is what Paul says. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Now, Paul, again, I want, don't lose sight of the thread of thought and the teaching here that is going on. He's talking about the idea of how what we do impacts the other. And if what I do makes you sad and you're the one who makes me glad, how in the world can I expect to be made glad by you who I made sad? That's what he's saying here. I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt, hurt all of you more than he hurt me. You see, they were looking at this thing as something between an apostle and this individual rather than they being in part of it. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Actually, in this situation, you were more hurt than I was. 
And he's going to explain that now. He's saying that the problem in Corinth is not mine alone. Although people, they are trying to make it that way. You are involved in this because in attacking my credibility, they are in fact attacking your credibility. Why? Because I am the one who founded the church, led you to Christ. I was the one who preached the gospel that you believed. And by attacking my credibility, they are attacking your credibility as being genuine believers as well. So don't think that you can leave me out here to hang and dry all by myself. No, no, no. You are a part of this situation as well. Because if I am a fraud, then your faith is a fraud. That's what he's saying here, all right? In other words, the attack by those who oppose me is also an attack on you. Because of the intimate relationship as members of the body of Christ, as well as our relationship as pastor and people. My problem is yours, and your problem is mine. That's what he's saying. And we need to see that if we're going to deal with it right. And he's saying, it's, it's amazing, Paul says, I don't want to press this point too hard, but that's the case nonetheless, and you must realize it. I don't want to force this upon you, but this is the truth you must realize. Then he goes into his role now as pastor, teacher, and leader. He's going to take the lead now. This is what he says in verse 6. Most of you opposed him. This is after the second letter. And that was punishment enough. In other words, he said, this man who did whatever sin was, whether it was the first the man we have in First Corinthians or another person, he's saying here that the way you handle it uh, was punishment enough. It, therefore, it should be stopped now. Um, now, however, it is time to forgive. Notice the word, and comfort him. That's the word that ties us back to chapter 1. Otherwise, he may become overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. So Paul is a little sly here. This was a test for them. When you forgive this man, I forgive him. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Now, this is, this is a fascinating passage of scripture from a counseling point of view, from a psychological point of view, as well as a spiritual one. Paul is saying here, don't overlook what's really happening here in this misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding of why it didn't come. Don't overlook what is going on here. Satan is at work. He's trying to divide the body of Christ. He's trying to turn you against me and also to hinder your ministry. This is not a minor issue, Paul is saying. And if it's not handled well, it could destroy the work of Christ in all of our lives. This is what is his issue here. In this case at hand here, genuine godly repentance of a sinning member of the body must be followed by genuine forgiveness and restoration to fellowship within the body. If not, Satan could have a field day with the sinner who has repented and caused him to have bitterness and resentment against not only me, but against you as well. And as a result of that, my ministry and the ministry of the church could be hindered. 
could be adversely affected. Paul says, don't misunderstand what is going on. Satan is at work. Let's see his strategy. And in context here, when he talks about the strategy of Satan, he's not talking about all kinds of strategy. He's talking about this particular strategy in Corinth to divide the people by causing them to have a bad relationship with him as leader of the Corinthians church. Now, Paul is going to pick up this idea of godly sorrow that leads to repentance and an ungodly sorrow that leads to death in chapter 7. So everything from this verse here, chapter, verse 11, over to chapter 7 is sort of a parenthesis. Paul is going to pick this up later on, but we'll deal with that when we come to chapter 7. But for now, he continues with the personal stress this situation had placed upon him. And he goes on to make a remarkable confession that even he faces as an apostle. He says, When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind. He keeps saying that. He has no peace of mind, no tranquility of spirit. Why? Because my dear brother Titus had not yet arrived with a report from you. You see, Paul had sent the second letter to Corinth with Titus. And he was waiting for Titus to come back to find out how they received it. Did they accept, received it well, or did they reject it again? He was waiting for that answer. So he said, I said goodbye and went to Macedonia to find him. Now, please don't miss the personal and inner uh, heart of Paul here. Because this is quite an admission of a spirit-filled, totally committed to Christ, top leader of the church to make. You wouldn't expect a man like Paul in such a position to make this personal statement. He had no rest in the spirit. Now, you can say, well, Paul, what do you mean? You don't trust in the Lord, eh? Don't be anxious. You know, Paul, not Paul. Paul has no rest in spirit. He didn't know what he's talking about, the peace of God passing all understanding. Not here. He's talking about his own spirit now, and he says he has no rest for his spirit. His deep innermost self. He was under stress. He was under pressure. He was restless, angry. He was anxious. So much, in fact, he could not even take advantage of a wide open door for preaching the gospel in Troas. Now, Troas was a significant city in his day. And Paul's strategy for taking the gospel to the end of the world was always to begin in major cities. Always. Not little towns. Big cities. Because that's where the gospel could be spread. And here, an open door, he says, was made available for him to preach the gospel at Troas. But he was so anxious in his spirit, he couldn't take it. So you see, Satan was already having a victory here, hindering the gospel from going out. Now, when you go to the book of Acts, you'll find that he did go, finally go to Troas, and he had a tremendous ministry. So he's hindered for a while. But Paul is saying here, it was Satan who has caused it, and he's caused it because of the kind of response he was having from the people at Corinth now. He goes on, and he says... Um, Titus had not yet returned, so he didn't hear what the, what, what the response of the uh, Corinthians were. Now, he was also concerned for Titus. Then you read the book of, the further on in the book of Corinthians as well as Acts, you'll find out, remember last time we talked about 
Corinthians having to take an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Well, the person who was going to bring that to Paul was Titus. So Paul was probably traveling with a lot of money. And Paul undoubtedly was concerned for his safety because he had to go through a lot of areas that were known to be inhabited by highway robbers. So Paul was concerned uh, as far as the response from the people was concerned with his letter as well as the safety of this beloved Titus. And so Paul was under stress. Like my young grandson was singing one day in the car. Monday stress. Tuesday stress. Wednesday stress. You know, that's Paul. Paul could not have the peace of mind that he wanted until he had heard from the Corinthians and he saw Paul. So he's under a lot of spiritual, emotional, and psychological stress. You don't have too many leaders who would admit that today. Sometimes this is the problem for me to admit. Let me give you an illustration here. You remember last week or two weeks ago, I was invited to be the guest speaker at Grace Community Church. I was supposed to be there for the whole week. They had like five different occasions for me to speak. Well, I finally listened to some of my advisors and they said that was too much. I shouldn't do that. So I said I could only speak at two meetings, the beginning, the opening, and the closing. Well, coming around to the closing time, the closing Sunday, I got the flu, and I was really not feeling good. And I was under pressure. I mean, I was under emotional and spiritual and psychological pressure. Then I got a call from Pastor Lyle Bethel. He says the mission committee had met because they had a luncheon that I was supposed to be at, but I couldn't go because I wasn't feeling well. And they said, we don't want you to preach anymore. He says, because we believe that you are not well enough to do it. I know, I don't like, I never thought I'd be relieved from saying that I couldn't speak. But I found relief. It's almost like a burden was taken off my shoulder when he told me that. The stress was gone. The pressure was gone. And I realized again how much emotional and spiritual pressure is really placed upon a person who preaches the word of God. There's a pressure. There's no doubt about that. You see? And uh, this is what Paul was experiencing. He was experiencing this pressure in his spirit, he says here now. Now, you know what he taught in chapter 1. He says that, pro- that problems and difficulties are given to us so that we could learn at least three things. Remember what they were? What is the reason for difficulties for suffering on the part of God's people? Well, first of all, so that we might be equipped in order to comfort others who go through the same thing. That was the first one. The second one, he says, so we might learn how to depend upon the grace of God rather than upon ourselves. And the third was that we might learn how to claim the promises of God. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. We'll see that is going further. So he is living out what he is teaching. Now, notice now. Thank God. He has made his, he has made us, his captives, and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere, like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. It's a sacrifice. 
But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. He's going to now explain why some people in the church act in one way and some act in another way. It's because of where they're headed. Some are headed for heaven. They receive the word of God gladly. Others are headed for hell and they do not receive the word or the ones who bring the word. Paul then identifies himself with the gospel he preached. Now, please listen to this. This is practical stuff here, although it's based on doctrine. He identifies himself with the message he preaches. We should do the same thing. Paul talks about it, you know, about us being uh, the gospel written in the hearts and so on. I, I read a story once of a fellow who went to his pastor and says, some unsaved people just moved in to the door in the, in the house next to me. Do you have some literature I could use? The pastor says, yeah. He says, okay, what is it? He says, you. He says, you are the literature. They should be able to read your life and see Jesus Christ. If you are there next door, labor, no matter how much pieces of literature they give you, your life is going to distract from it if it isn't manifesting the glory of God. So, Paul is identifying himself in this passage with the gospel he preached. They were one and the same when it came to their impact upon people. He is using the practice here, his illustration of a general who was victorious over his enemies and now he's returning home. And what the custom was where they would bring the, the uh, prisoners behind them and also all of the booty that they had won. And as they did that, incense would be spread as they marched their way home. This is the illustration he's having here. So to the citizens who were watching this parade, the things that he, the, the commander was bringing behind them, to the citizens who watched that, that was a note of victory and triumph. But to the people who are lost, that was a notice of defeat and um, a real loss to them. Paul is using this picture here with regards to the gospel. He says, to some, the smell of the gospel and the smell of a person who lives the gospel, to some, they are an aroma of life. To other, they're an aroma of death. And that is true whenever we preach the gospel, by the way. And this is why it's such a pressure on me to preach it accurately. It is possible for me and any other preacher of the word to lead a person away from God or to God by what we preach. And if we do not preach the word of God accurately, we can be sure we're going to lead people away from God and unto death. That's why it's so important for us to rightly divide the word of truth. The study to show ourselves approved unto God a workman that needed not to be ashamed. Notice what he says now. Who is adequate for these things? This is what we call a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. He is showing his dependence upon God now. That's what he's saying he's implying to do with the Corinthians. He is depending upon God to get things right. He's going to answer this in detail later on. But right now he's saying only God is adequate for this. That's why God allowed Paul to experience the time of stress and anxiety 
so that God could deliver him so that Paul could do the same for believers through his ministry to them. He, he defends himself against the charge of being in the ministry for money. Notice what he says. You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. This is a tremendous passage, and this goes home to my heart here. Now, the word hucksters is translated peddlers in some other translation. It literally means hustling or hawking. It's like a salesperson who tries to con you out of things by promising you all kinds of things that you know isn't true. But boy, if they could suck you into it. It's what in the old days is called being a carpet biker or selling magic oil and so on. It goes on today. Turn on your TV to TBN. You hear things like seed money, right? That's a huckster. That's a peddler. That's what Paul is talking about here. You put your money in this soil here, my ministry, not your home church, mind you. It's got to be the right soil, and that right soil is what? The ministry you're listening to. You put $10 in here, and you're going to get 10000 back. That's a hustler. That's a hustler of the gospel. You see, this is what Paul wants. You listen to the message, God wants you to be wealthy. That's it. You just put your money here in this right soil, and you will be wealthy. That's a hustler of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said that's not coming from a sincere heart or a pure heart. It is a word that is used in the Old Testament when a person who sells wine would put more water into it than he should, and so he dilutes it. People who preach the gospel and would not preach it for what it is, the word of God, preaches a diluted gospel. I can guarantee you here, you won't hear that here. If you do, it's time to get rid of the person who does it. All right? Paul says here, he, is a, he does it out of a pure heart. He does it for the glory of God and for the good of the people. Now, this sincerity here is a real good word. It means free from all impurities. Free from all impurities. That's his attitude. The gospel is preached in the same way. The gospel is to be preached free from all impurities. And it should be preached from a motive that is also free from all impurities. If I was just here preaching for money, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Because I'm getting too much. I only joke about that. I only joke about that. All right. But Paul is saying that is not what a preacher should be doing. Preaching for the financial benefit of it. And he says... God is the judge of his statement here. He puts himself under the judgment of God. So this is a real serious thing for us as preachers, pastors, as well as for the people of God. Because you are responsible for me, and I am responsible for you. That's what Paul is saying. So here's an application and warning as we close. First, to us, preachers and pastors, integrity of character and purity of motive are the basic qualifying qualities of a bona fide, divinely called servant of Jesus Christ. Integrity of character, purity of motive. Without these, 
We are but spiritual hustlers and spiritual carpet baggers, counterfeits that have no place in the Christian ministry. And if we do not acknowledge our sin and repent, if we are in this state, we should take the initiative to resign before God himself judges us and rejects us. But for you, as members of the body of Christ, in the pew as it were, we are, you have the responsibility of evaluating, examining, and choosing your leaders carefully according to the word of God. Don't settle for second best or God's rejects. Who do God's rejects? Those who couldn't find a good ministry anywhere else. Do not follow or support those who you know are personally profiting from your resources. In fact, you should expose them. If we expose them, we wouldn't have too many of them lasting as long as they do. Many of them are only in the ministry now because we do not discern who we are receiving truth from. We just like what we hear, and so we give without examination. That's what Paul is talking about in this chapter. Now, he hasn't, he hasn't finished yet. He's going to go on. And you're going to see some more of these real practical things that Paul is talking about. And he speaks to you and he speaks to me as well. And my prayer is that we will receive this as the word of God and not as the word of man. Amen? That's our word of prayer. Let's take a few seconds. Perhaps God has used the word in some fashion to remind you of something that you need to take care in your own life. Perhaps a gossip. Perhaps you're spreading things that are not true. You're making implications of pastors or other Christians to others that are not true. And you need to repent of that and ask God's forgiveness. Do that right now. Perhaps you are supporting individuals that you know are not preaching the gospel from sincerity and a pure heart. And you know that the gospel they preach is not pure as well. You need to repent of that as well and to stop doing that. And we ask as pastors of Calvary Bible Church to pray for us that we would be aware of the tactics of Satan in destroying his body, the body of Christ. Give us, pray that we might be given wisdom to prevent this from happening. And when we do have problems, that we deal with them in a humble and a loving way that will demonstrate the love of Christ and also love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.